This year, the Masters Tournament's back in its usual April slot after the COVID-19 pandemic delayed it to November in 2020. So what better time to revisit my conversation with golf legend Jack Nicholas, The 18-time major winners, part of golf's big three, along with Gary Player and the late Arnold Palmer, I've now interviewed all three of them for their own episodes. I actually first had Nicholas scheduled for a taping back in 2009 when I worked for NBC, only to get laid off and have to embarrassingly cancel the taping with the greatest golfer ever to live. It took five years of follow-ups to give the taping back. It helped that I had since taped episodes with Player and Palmer and literally ends up turning into some of the best access we've ever gotten for a taping. Three days over four cities with Nicholas joining him on his private jet from Dallas to Santa Barbara to LA to Cabo to check out his golf design work. For a guy who's now 81 years old, we were struggling to keep up, literally only sleeping a few hours a night due to the aggressive schedule he keeps. And in my 2016 sit down with the Golden Bear, we go back to the beginning when a young Nicholas was just developing his love for the game. That's why I ended up playing golf. I didn't need somebody to throw the ball back to me. I didn't need somebody to guard me. I could go to the golf course and do what I wanted to do and spend as much time as I wanted. The devoted son explains how his father ignited his passion and why his untimely death changed his approach. I don't think when my, I found when my dad passed that I'd really give him my best. As part of one of sports' most famous rivalries, Nicholas explains his fierce competition with Arnold Palmer. He was quick to point out that he shot 63 and beat me. So our competition started right there. And the lifelong friendship they created away from the spotlight. All that's coming up right here on the In-Depth with Graham Bensinger podcast. Yeah, I was talking to one of your close friends the other day who said uh, about you, Jack couldn't get himself to stop working if he wanted to. Why do you keep working? I enjoy it. You know, first of all, uh, I'm, I'm pretty loyal to my people. People that work for me have been with me for a lot of years. Uh, probably maybe a little, to a fault. Uh, a lot of people uh, take the Jack Welsh approach of firing, you know, 10% of his people every year. I just don't, I just never believed in that, although he's probably right. Uh, my feeling is I've just been loyal to my people and, and uh, during the economy, uh, when the economy dropped and fell off the face in about 2007, uh, I just didn't think during that next five years that, uh, Everybody got a very fair shake, so I just, I want to make sure they get a fair shake. And so I enjoyed uh, being part of trying to recover my own business, figure out ways that uh, uh, my business be successful other than being a golf course design business. I mean, certainly it's not going to be a business because I play golf anymore. But uh, uh, it's been fun. It's been, it's been enjoyable. One of the kind of key moments early on in your business's growth was mid-80s, uh, I think your young CFO comes in for a meeting with you where he thinks it's actually to resign. Um, tell about what actually happened though in that meeting. We had a time back in the mid-80s that um, I, was, I was playing too much golf and not playing enough business, I suppose. But I, you know, you, you, you have people that run your business and you let them run your business. and. Uh, Anyway, I ended up with uh, well over $100 million of completion contracts that I had to do, that I had committed for, and there's no way in the world that those projects were going to yield that or anything else. So it was a great learning lesson. Uh, 
but it was a lot of millions of dollars of learning learning to get there. What do you think was the most challenging part for you of that period? Oh, well, the most challenging part was is, is I was a golfer, and I really didn't have, I'd never been in any kind of a situation like that, and I didn't know where to go. But uh, it was, it was, uh, it was not. It was not not a pleasant time. Like, but then that was right around the time of the Masters in '86. Right. And everybody kept uh, saying, "Oh, how can you play golf with all this hanging over your head?" And I said, "Hey, that's what I do is play golf." And so uh, I've never let uh, business bother what I did on the outside. Uh, uh, I always felt like uh, uh, you know, if I treated people right, and I did what I thought was the right thing, it would all come out in the end. Uh, I think that uh, uh, some of that stuff I would have been uh, uh, financially a lot better off today if some of that stuff hadn't happened, but uh, it happened. And uh, when it happened, uh, you know, you, you do the make your best out of it as you, as you can. And it's a great learning experience. It's not, well, a, yeah, not a learning experience you'd like to right. have, but, it's a, but it was a great learning experience. What do you think you learned from it? I learned that if I'm going to get myself involved in, in, in things that are involved with a lot of money, and I better know what's going on. I mean, it was a, a, basically I built two golf courses, but these two particular golf courses, we took a larger stake in it as a company. Uh, probably shouldn't have. The economy at the time didn't, didn't fare very well. And as a result, uh, the projects didn't do particularly well. Actually, both projects are very successful today. But that was, that's always, the second owner always gets a nice shot. <laughs> right. Uh, the the uh, Great Recession. During that period, the U.S. US golf course design business just kind of came to a halt, I think, predating that. <clears throat> 500 courses annually in the U.S. were being built. Oh, yeah. Right around 2007, it just stopped. And uh, we had, uh, we were doing, uh, probably in the early 2000s, we were probably doing 30, 35 golf courses a year. And so the business is starting to come back a little bit. There's a few few golf courses that, that we're doing, but uh, certainly uh, we had we had we had to go overseas, and uh, you know we we worked in uh, uh, in China, we worked in Japan, we worked in Korea, uh, we worked in Russia, uh, we worked in the in the Middle East, uh, we worked all kinds of places. South Africa, uh, well, South Africa is actually a little bit prior to that, uh, but but we we worked at all those places because. That's where we had to go for business. And uh, uh, would I prefer to do my work in the United States? Yeah. I'd much rather have a one-hour flight or a two-hour flight than a 17-hour than a flight, absolutely. But, uh, uh, you know, I've actually enjoyed it. I've enjoyed going overseas because you, uh, the different cultures, the different people that you meet, the different things that you, the things that you learn about. Uh, you, you know, you go to China and you find out they do business so much different than you do. Or you go to Russia, and they do business so much different than you do. Uh, it's a it's a learning experience. That's actually uh, it's actually kind of fun. Design, I think, pre-recession was golf course design was eighty percent of your business. Now marketing makes up as much as fifty percent of the business. Uh, probably even more. What do you think made you recognize, uh, you know, at that point that you needed to look into other areas of business? Well. I think that if you look at what happened, I go back to 2007, I believe it was, when I, I, I sold 49% of my company to Howard Milstein and the Immigrant Bank and uh, brought Howard in. And at that point in time, uh, that's when 
the bank problems occurred and everything went south. Um, I, at that time, we were, uh, we were doing a, a fairly large number of golf courses at the time, which we just talked about. And the, um, uh, it just dried up. And so we said, well, what is the future of this company? I mean, I used to go to the golf course. I played golf. I came back. I made a name. Uh, you know, I got uh, people wanted me to do their golf course. That was nothing but smiles on the face. And then, 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 then all of a sudden, I said, well, I got to do something else. So uh, I started. I've been for the last couple of years or so. I've been uh, going to see CEOs and of, of this company, these companies, different companies of different kinds of things, which has been which has been a, a very has been a great learning experience, and it's been and it's been fun to do. I've gotten myself involved in in in, in uh, uh, going to sell ice cream and uh, and it's having a lot of success. That's what's right here right now. That cost me twenty pounds. <laughs> yeah, right. And, and I need to get that off, but it's but it has cost me twenty pounds. But anyway, the um, I've enjoyed that. Your dad's dad. I, I don't know if you recall this story, but your dad's dad once took your father and his two brothers uh, to see him making boilers. Yeah, he used to work for, he, my, my mother's father worked for the C&O, I think she probably, he probably worked for the B&O. I think my dad's father worked for the C&O Railroad. So they were both working on the railroad. One was a conductor and my dad's father was a boilermaker. And so he took, him, took the boys down and, and 100 and whatever degree temperature it was that he was making these boilers. And he said, guys, I want you to see what I do because I never want you to have to do this. So they became, I got two pharmacists and a dentist out of those three boys and all went to professional school. They all worked their, their way through school and uh, they, they, they sort of uh, found the American dream and, and moved forward. What do you remember from your dad's pharmacies? Well, I remember I didn't like them. And what I Why mean, not? Well, because from the time I was 10 years old, I worked at them. Oh, okay, you got it. <laughs> Every time, I, hate, I hated Christmas holidays and summer because that's I was I was in I, all my friends were out playing I was in in there being a stock boy or doing working in the drugstore or, or became I became an a, a apprentice pharmacist I went to college to be but a I was going to say you went to the, your first oh, three yeah. years of college were studying yeah, my first three years for, for pharmacy but anyway that's okay uh, and, and, but but I spent the time then my dad finally figured out that. Uh, I had a little bit of talent playing golf, so we started. We started getting off at four o'clock in the afternoon, type thing, and we'd go play golf. Of course, in Ohio back in, in those days, it was light till nine thirty at night. So, you know, you, we had we could play eighteen holes and do whatever we want, and still had a pretty good pretty good day of golf. Uh, and so, but uh, and, and I, I you know I, I was like a lot of kids. I said, well, my dad was a pharmacist. Why wouldn't I be a pharmacist? I would follow my dad's footsteps. My dad was my best friend and my idol, and you know, I just sort of wanted to follow after after my dad. So, and then he ta he talked after three years of college, he talked me out of being a pharmacist. I was getting ready to go to go to pharmacy school, and uh, he uh, he said, Jack, you can't use your golf behind a counter. He says, I don't think it's the best place for you to be. And he said, so I I went over and I switched over to the business school, and of course. Uh, then I went about a year and a half at the business school, and, and, and turned pro, and I never I didn't I didn't have finishing. I had plenty of hours to finish, but I, because I didn't have the right combination of courses, but I went and played golf, and uh, you know I kind of I kind of liked that. I really enjoyed it. I had a good time, and I found that it was something that I did reasonably well, 
and something that uh, was very rewarding. Uh, I was able to provide, I mean, from the day I got married, which Barbara and I were 20 years old when we got married, uh, the day we got married, I got off my dad's back. And, uh, you know, he had, my wedding present was, a, I think it was a $1,200 down payment on a house, because he hated rent, he hated renting houses. And so I think he gave me that as, as a down payment. And that was the last thing I got from my dad from ever. And, uh, but he always was my mentor no matter what. So uh, it was, uh, uh, it was kind of fun to be able to, uh, every, every and, I was, and I was selling insurance at the time. I was actually the youngest person that ever was licensed in the state of Ohio to sell insurance. I got licensed on my 20th birthday and you had to be 21 to be licensed, but they, but they, but they made an exception for me and I got at 20. And you did really well doing that too. I, I, I sold insurance, but I, I mean, I, I had a hard time going into my fraternity or through, the, through Ohio State and selling insurance to 20 year old kids about, oh, you need to protect yourself for life. I mean, I, I, to me, I, I, I just didn't have my heart in that. Uh, that's what I did. Uh, then I, then I got- a means to an end. Yeah. Well, I got I got involved in that. Then I got involved in in, uh, uh, in, in, in another side of the, the insurance business where I did some work for uh, a company called Parker and Company, and I, they, they handled National Airlines and Pan Am and some other airlines. So I did little PR type things, and uh, uh, you know. But I was still in the insurance business. So in 1961, when I turned pro, I was doing all right financially. I was doing all right. I certainly didn't pro, turn pro to for, from a financial standpoint. I turned pro because. Uh, I wanted to be the best I could be at playing golf. And I couldn't do that unless I played against the best. And the only way to do that was to turn pro. So I kept my insurance business for a while. And with, with a friend of mine named Bob Hogue, we did some things together. And um, it eventually just, I let it dissipate after time. But uh, uh, it, was a, it was a great learning experience, but I found out that that's not what I wanted to do. And so, uh, you know, so I played golf for what? I played golf for 50 years, but uh, also played uh, uh, during that period of time. I had lots of different things that I did. And I started my golf course design business. We got into 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 clothing and other things that, that all were a natural extension. And um, it's 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 been it's been a great journey. I wanted to go back to your dad here momentarily, and he was quite the athlete as well. He actually played under an assumed name so he could play college football Saturdays play for a team on Sundays that has since become the Detroit Lions. So he, right. he was a, a great athlete as well. Um, he, he passed away from pancreatic and uh, uh, liver cancer. And I, I read that you said his passing was really allowed you to uh, gain perspective, see the big picture. Well, what my, what my, about that? Well, my dad was 56, he was far too young. I was, uh, I was 30, 30 years old when, uh, when he passed. I just turned 30, and uh, you know, I looked back on it. and I said, my dad sort of lived for what I did. That was I was sort of my sister. I think got the short end of the stick. She sort of was in the background, and uh, uh, my dad spent his time with me. And uh, my mother was great. She was very supportive, and as was my sister. My sister was never jealous. She was terrific, still is, and. Uh, uh, we sort of uh, uh, spent our time together, grew together, uh, and, and I felt like, you know, I wanted to be the best I could be, but I don't think when my I found when my dad passed that I'd really give him my best. What? Uh, I, well, I think I, I think I could have played a lot better. I could have worked harder. I think you can always work harder. 
I mean, did I work hard? Yes. But did, could I have worked harder? Yes. And uh, when he passed, I said, oh, here, here he is. I've, I'm just at the start of my career, and yet my father's gone, who really was what he, 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 it's what he lived for. And so uh, I sort of rededicated myself a little bit that year and uh, sort of, I think my golf game was kind of shabby, actually, and in my opinion. Uh, you know, although, although I probably, I don't remember, but I probably won several tournaments. But uh, I got back in 1970, and then I, I won the British Open that year at St. Andrews. And uh, that was sort of saying, eh, Dad, I, I think I made you proud here. So that was good. Why have you said you don't think you fully matured until he passed away? Well, I don't think that, I don't think anybody, I, uh, I don't think anybody ever really reaches their potential. If you ever reach your potential, you can only go downhill. So I've always felt like no matter what I've done all my life, I've tried to climb a mountain. And I never wanted to get to the other side of that mountain. I always wanted to make the, I kept hope the mountain was taller and I just had to keep climbing it. And that's what I tried to do with my golf game. I've tried to do it in my business career. Uh, I've tried to do it with my kids, raising my kids, trying to do things that uh, uh, make them better, make me better, and do things that, that are better. I don't know if that's my German background or what it is, but it's, uh, uh, I, I've always enjoyed uh, uh, that, that, that ability or some, something that drives me inside to try to be better. And, when and I said, you know, maybe I, by my dad's passing, uh, uh, it allowed me to sort of uh, uh, grow up in some ways and say, uh, you really, you really sort of goofed off here. You didn't really work as hard as you should have. You thought maybe your dad would be around for a long time to share this with you, and you could share it with him. But you know, I'm, I mean, I played golf for a long time as, as it relates to playing playing tournament golf. But uh, still. Um, I would have liked to have concentrated a little bit of it earlier with him. How do you think he impacted how you've been as a father? Well, I think that uh, he impacted a lot. My mother and I think Barbara's parents impacted a lot. Barbara's parents, they uh, they had good values, and they you know they they uh, I mean, Barb's father never made more than six thousand dollars a year in his lifetime teaching school. Yet she never wanted for anything. Her father put away a dollar a week the day she was born for her wedding. Now we went to Scioto Country Club, which is not a cheap place. We had a wedding with 500 people that he paid for with a dollar a week from the time she was born. That's pretty neat. That's amazing. Uh, your wife, Barbara, it, tell me if I'm wrong on this, but the first time you met her, did she actually set you up with one of her friends instead? Well, I, well, Barbara was a pretty popular girl. She was, uh, she was sort of a, uh, you know, popular girl in her, in her high school. And she, when she came to campus, and the girl I was dating at the time was a popular girl from from our school. They were friends from different sororities that that got to know each other and then all that stuff. And uh, uh, but the girl I was dating, we all decided we were going to go date around in college. And if we ended up at the end of college, fine. If we didn't, that's fine. And so anyway, um, Mary was her name. She introduced me to Barbara. I walked Barbara down to where she was working at the uh, bacteriology building, and she was going to a class, and uh, uh, and she was working a little bit to try to pay her way through school, and so uh, uh, I called her up that night and asked her if she'd like to go out. She, she I couldn't work me on her schedule, so she set me up in the meantime with a couple of gals she knew I wouldn't like. <laughs> <laughs> oh, okay, that's how this works. <laughs> that's the way it goes, and. Uh, 
She was, she was right. Oh, they were actually nice girls, but they were, they were not good. They were somebody I wouldn't want to go any further with. And so uh, then finally Barbara worked me into her schedule after two or three weeks, and then we, then we, of course, we've dated ever since. How do you think your life would be different if you never met her? Barbara's, Barbara is one of the unique individuals who realized that, uh, well, when she, when she first met me, she had no idea that I was going to be a golf professional, neither did I. I thought I was going to be a pharmacist. But she also uh, realized that uh, when I started playing golf that I had something a little special as a talent. And she said that uh, she sort of knew that she, for me to be successful, she had to sort of uh, uh, make sure that I sort of dominated the scene and she was very supportive. She stayed in the background. She didn't want to get in front of things. And because she said, and, and, and I, I always loved what, uh, uh, there was a line that, that uh, Winnie Palmer, who was one of Barbara's best friends. Uh, Arnold Palmer's wife. Arnold Palmer's wife, yeah. Uh, and, and Barbara and Winnie were, were very, very close. And uh, Winnie said, she said, you know, she says, I would get mad at Arnold on Tuesday, and I'd be afraid to say anything to him because, you know, I didn't want to inter bother his golf game and, and, and make him getting his mind off his game of the week. And by the su time Sunday roll rolled around, I forgot what I was mad about, so I just forgot it. It's a pretty good way to do it. And Barbara was much the same. She would, she would find, if there was an article in the newspaper, it was a bad article, she'd make sure she cut that thing out of the newspaper and put it in the trash can before I could ever see the newspaper. So she never let me see stuff like that. And so um, she was great. She still is. You, uh, she took it to the extremes, too, I, I mean, in some situations to protect you. I think it was the 1967 Sahara Invitational in Las <laughs> Vegas. Tell about what happens in the middle of the night there. Oh, well, Barbara, I'm, I'm, I shot 62 on Saturday, and Barbara's pregnant. And Barbara had, uh, she was having had a miscarriage during the middle of the night. She didn't tell me. She just, she did take it to an extreme. She ended up... Uh, uh, finally waking me up about 8 o'clock in the morning, and she says, I think I'm having a miscarriage. I think I need to go to the hospital. I mean, she had been there most of the night. And, but she, was, she knew I need, she wanted to make sure I got a good night's sleep. She didn't care about herself. She made sure I got a night's sleep, took her to the hospital, and, of course, uh, then I went out and I won the golf tournament, came back, picked her up, and then I was Mr. Mom for about the next week <laughs> taking care of her. But uh, it was... Um, She's, she's always been great that way. And, you know, we have, we have five kids, 22 grandkids, and she is, you know, she, she spends her time being Mimi, which is what they call her, being a great grandmother and, and taking care of her kids. And she was great. And she raised our kids. I mean, you know, she always, she always took care of the discipline with our kids. Uh, if uh, uh, one of the kids were bad and so forth and so on, she didn't want me coming home if I had been gone for a week come home and discipline the kids. She said she wanted me to, when the, I came home, that the kids were always my friend and I was always my friend. And she didn't want to, because you know, when you're away for a while, it's hard, it's hard sometimes. And so she was just, she's been fantastic. So anyway, that went on for the golf. And then when, when I did my design business, she sort of, she knew that that's what I was doing as well as I was playing golf. She sort of kept in the background. And then about the last 10 or 11 years, we, we got involved in charities. And so, Eleven years ago, <clears throat> we started and we we uh, got involved in the Nicholas Children's Healthcare Foundation. It happened when the the Honda tournament came up to the Palm Beach areas, and and the uh, 
the people from the Honda tournament came to us and said, she says, you know the Palm Beach area better than we do. We've always supported children's charities. What do you think we ought to do in the Palm Beach area? Right. And so uh, uh, I looked at Barbara and I said, well, you want to, do you want to go for this? And so that's when we started our healthcare foundation. And Honda was, the, was sort of the, uh, uh, the catalyst to get us started. We started the foundation and we've now I don't know what we've raised. We've raised more raised, than thirty-five yeah, we've million raised, dollars. We've raised a lot of money, and we, and we've raised a lot of money in, in a very soft way, and 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 basically it's been the other way around. Now, now I support her, which has been I've had a blast doing it. It's, it's I've had a lot of fun doing it. It's great. She's she's. Uh, What's it been like for her? Oh, she loves it. I mean, she she just loves it. I'm, I I actually I'm getting. I said, you know, I said Barbara, we don't do anything else, <laughs> which is sometimes the truth. Because I'm working, still working a lot, and when I come home, now we still got charity events to go to. Now, says so, you know, I'd love to have a dinner at home sometime. Right. You know, we used to be, you know, we used to be dinner at home six nights a week, and and now we're we're probably on, out maybe five nights a week. So, it's a, it's a little bit more difficult, but it's a, uh, it's keep it's keeping us young, it's keeping us active, and we're really making a difference with some kids, and that's fun. And, and not too long ago, Miami Children's Hospital was renamed Nicholas Children's Hospital right. it, it, to coincide with the pledge you made to the hospital for some $60 million. And we made a, ple a pledge that we can't afford. Which, which, so the pledge is not from us. The pledge is, the pledge, well, we, we, did, we put 15, 15 from our uh, foundation, which we'd raised over right. time. But then the, the other 45, we've, we, I have to go out and raise. Right. And I, I remember the other day I sat down with a gentleman that uh, I wanted to raise some money from. And I sat down with him and I said, you know, this is the first time I've done this. And I said, I'm not, this is not my, my cup of tea. It's kind of funny. I've never gone in and asked people for money before. Does that make you uncomfortable? Sure, it makes me uncomfortable because it's something I've never done. I mean, but done. it's for a good cause. But, 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 it, but I look at what it does and, and, what, and, what, and what the result is. And, you know, it's, I mean, we have the Nicholas Children's Hospital has now, uh, uh, the main ho main hospital, eight outpatient clinics, and then recently opened a, a pediatric center at the Jupiter Medical Center, which is also Nicholas Children's with the with the George family. So it, it works very very well, and, and, and to have these these outpatient centers uh, up and down the, the southeast coast associated with our hospital has made a big difference to a lot of families. And uh, we know 91% of all your health care is done outside the hospital, and so if you're doing that then most people are going to get the care. You take the, the very sick will go to the hospital, mm -hmm. and, and that's okay. Uh, if, that, if that's needed, then you do it. But uh, uh, it's, uh, it's, been, it's been absolutely a, a real blessing to a lot of people and a real rewarding to us. I want to take you back to your younger days sure. when you were growing up. Uh, you ran track, became the fastest kid in the school. You were a switch-hitting catcher in baseball, you played quarterback and kicker and uh, football, forward and basketball. How all-consuming was sport for you? Well, my father, my dad was a, um, a 13 letterman, or no, let's say he might be 11. 11 letters in three years of high school, which is uh, three in basketball, baseball, and uh, football, and he started the golf team. And he started the golf team in his junior year, so he was, he was getting also a city tennis champion. So my dad was a very good athlete. So my dad introduced me to everything. And I've always believed that your body is best developed by playing more than one sport. I've never been a gym rat. 
Uh, I've always gone. I've always gone to play a sport to develop my body in different ways. I mean, we, we skied. Uh, I mean, I water skied, then I snow skied, uh, uh, hunted, fished. Uh, I said, I said, I played. I was recruited at Ohio State for basketball, and you know, I mean, uh, not that I probably would have played, but but but, but I, you know, I was at least good enough to be recruited. Right. And by Ohio State. By Ohio State. We had, <laughs> right. and, and they won the NCAA when I was when I was there, and so, you know. I've always felt like developing your body was good. So, and I and I've always, I've always and I've always run a little bit all my life. And I think that's, I think I think I, I, I hate seeing what the kids do today. I hate seeing a kid saying, "Oh, you got to specialize at age eight years old, or you'll never get to the next level." Well, they're not going to get. Ninety-nine percent of them aren't going to get to the next level anyway. Enjoy your sports. Enjoy your things. And, and of course, I, I think sports is such a great tool for kids. I mean, you learn to. Not only have team sports, we learn to get along with people, learn how to how to how to share, learn how to uh, enjoy uh, enjoy victory, and learn how to lose. You learn how to accept defeat. You learn how to you learn to do all the things. And then individual sports, which are you know even more difficult because you got everything on your shoulders that it's all on you. Uh, I happen to like that, but uh, and, and I happen to like team sports too. But I happen to like ha being responsible for what I had to do and take and and be responsible for winning or responsible for losing. I always thought that was fun. Explain how your dad's fractured ankle was basically responsible for getting right. you in well, the ball. That, I remember him carrying him in after he played volleyball and his ankle was all swollen up and they carried him in. He, uh, he went down and they, they did not find a break in it. Well, he didn't do anything more with it and he kept getting worse and worse and finally uh, the doctor said, you know, Charlie, he says, I think your ankle's all full of bone spurs and arthritis and he says, we need to Fix it. So he had to end up having three operations, and they ended up end up fusing his ankle, and so he could move this way, but he had no lateral movement. And uh, the doctor said, uh, you know, he'd been working for the last 15 years as a pharmacist. He says you need to take up something again that you have to walk. So, so we moved from the campus to Upper Arlington. <clears throat> we moved to Upper Arlington. He opened a new dr another drugstore out in Upper Arlington, and uh, he took up golf. But he couldn't make a game, so he took me, and I carried the bag. And you know, we'd go and we we walk one hole, and then I would chip and putt and hit a few little shots and have fun while he was resting. And then we'd play another hole and we'd do this thing. And finally, he said to me as we got near June, he said, uh, "When school's out, he says, would you like to learn how to play this game?" Which is what he did with every sport with me. And I said, "Sure." So he turned. I went to a class just like every other kid in the in, in, in the club. We had about sixty kids that came to a Friday morning class for Jack Grout. And that was Jack Grout's first year at Scioto Country Club. Jack was 40 years old at the time. Wonderful guy. And, and after about a week or two, Jack would turn and he says, Jackie boy, come out here and show these kids how to hit the ball in the air. Jackie boy, come out here and show these kids how to take a divot. After a week or two. Yeah, I mean, you know, I mean, he saw that I was doing things pretty quickly. And so, uh, we, we, quick thing, T tell me if this is true. As uh, I read about you that as a young man, your practice schedule as it pertained to golf was that you'd hit the driving range for three to four hours, then play two rounds of golf, and then putt until dark. But that, see, that's, what, what, that's why I ended up playing golf. <clears throat> I didn't need somebody to throw the ball back to me. I didn't need somebody to guard me. Uh, I didn't need somebody to hit the ball across the net to me. Uh, all I, I could go to the golf course and do what I wanted to do and spend as much time as I wanted. So what I would do is play a couple holes down to the clubhouse and I'd had to play before 8 o'clock. Juniors had to play before 8 o'clock. Uh, 
So I go play before 8 o'clock, play 18 holes. Then I come in, we couldn't play till after 4 o'clock then. And so uh, I'd go practice during the afternoon. And then 4 o'clock, I'd go back out and play another 18 holes. And then it would get dark. And, you know, and you know, my dad, between that and my dad had me in the drugstore, my dad finally figured out I was better out there than I was <laughs> at the drugstore. But uh, it, it, it was fun. And you didn't limit yourself to just good weather when it came to playing golf. Explain how you'd practice in oh, the snow and what your coach built. We had a little, we had a little Quonset hut, half Quonset hut was put up and they put a little gas heater in it that took the temperature up to maybe 55 degrees. And so I had that all winter. And what I would do is that I would, in those days we had, everybody had little practice bags and the members would have their little marking on their golf balls. So I would borrow everybody's practice bag and hit the balls out in the snow. And then when the snow melted, we'd go out and pick them up and we'd separate them again and then I'd do it again. <laughs> but that's, that's what I did. Bobby Jones, what was the, the experience like for you having him come and see you play as an amateur? Well, you know, I grew up at Scioto. Bobby Jones won the U.S. Open at Scioto in 1926, <clears throat> obviously long before I was born. But my father watched him play when he was only 12 years old when he watched him play. Uh, my, he became my dad's uh, idol. And so... Uh, there was a lot of members that were at Scioto that were there when I started playing golf in 1950 that watched Jones play. And so in 1955, I was 15 years old, and I qualified for the National Amateur. It was at the James River course at the Country Club of Virginia and in Richmond, Virginia. And so uh, I went down, and on the last practice round, I had a shot into the 18th green. It was a long par four. And this gentleman was over in a cart beside the green, and he, I had a feeling he went like, me like this. He, says, he introduced himself as Bobby Jones. And uh, so that I had, and he said, he said, I've been here all, all afternoon, young man. Or not all afternoon, I've been here for an hour or two. He says, only three people have reached this green. He says, that was a nice shot you played in there. I said, thank you very much, sir. And so. And, and you knew it was Bobby Jones, Bobby Jones. By that time, I okay. did. And so that night, he spoke at our banquet. Anyway, he came down to me after the dinner and he said, Jack, just a second. He says, I want to come out and watch you tomorrow, play a few holes. If you don't mind, I said, oh, no, sir, Mr. Jones, that'd be very nice. So, so I kept looking over my shoulder, where's Bobby Jones, where's Bobby Jones? And all of a sudden, down the 10th hole comes this cart. And here's Bobby Jones coming to watch me play golf. I'm a 15-year-old kid, okay? I went bogey, bogey, double bogey, <laughs> lost all three holes. He turned to my dad and he said, Charlie, I don't believe I'm doing Jack much good. He says, I think I'll get out of here. Anyway, I got back to even. I went from one up to two down, got back to even, and lost the 18th hole. I lost that match. And uh, I didn't see Jones again for two more years. And he came to the uh, um, uh, U.S. Uh, uh, J.C. Junior Tournament. It happened to be at Ohio State. And he was representing Coca-Cola at the time. And he came out and watched me play a couple of holes there. And, and I won the tournament. He presented me the trophy. And uh, another couple of years passed, I qualified for the Masters. So I was 19 years old, and I went down to Augusta, and in my locker was a little note. and said, Jack, welcome to the Masters, welcome to Augusta. He says, says, I'd like to invite you and your father to come down to my cabin and, and talk to me, which we did. So every year that little note was in my locker, and I went down there, and, we, and every year we would uh, uh, have a great conversation. He'd start telling me a lot of the, his little things that happened to him and things that made him a better player and why this, why that, and so forth. He took a great interest in me. And I was very flattered by that. And I was, uh, uh, and, and he, he couldn't have been nicer. He was just, he was a wonderful guy. And you apparently got some of 
the best advice you've ever received in golf uh, from Bobby Jones through your father at the 1961 Masters? Jones's teacher was Sterling Maiden. And Jones, he used to run back to Sterling Maiden every time he had a problem. And so he said that, uh, that during that period of time, Sterling Maiden tried to teach him how to correct himself, how to, uh, when he's having a bad shot or having problems in a round, how to manage his game and how to play during that period of time so he didn't put himself out of the tournament or he could perform the best he could with what he had that day. And so that's what Jack Grout always taught me too. And he's always said, you know, you need to be able to correct yourself. I think that's why I became a pretty decent golfer because I absolutely was able to fix myself. And, 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 and I, could, I, never, I never worried. If I was in the last round of a U.S. Open and I was one shot in the lead or one shot in the lead and I didn't like what I was doing, I changed it right then. Now, that's a pretty dangerous thing to do sometimes because you know you... Which is a rarity. Golfers golf, don't do most that. Most golfers won't do right. it. But, but I could, I'd do it, because, but, I'd always, but I'd always do it in a way that I would know what I had to do. I would go back to the fundamentals and I would, I would make that adjustment that I had to make, but I would make it in a way that uh, if I had a hole where I had big trouble on the left, I'd make sure I favored the right. So if I had a problem and I put it out to the right a little bit, I, I really wouldn't be in too much trouble. But it, but it, it served me well uh, a lot of times in a lot of big tournaments to be able to make that adjustment on the golf course. What do you think separates being a great professional golfer from being the best of a generation? Well, you know, I've, I always did it by major championships. That was always how you measured Jones with 13 major championships. I think Walter Hagen had 11 major championships. Um, but, 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 I mean, outside of the numbers, what is it about the... the qualities like the the work ethic or like uh, what do you think actually separates I, I really don't know I mean I think that I, I leave that to somebody else I mean all I can do is put the best record I could put up on the board and uh, I felt like uh, I'm maybe not the best and most objective person to determine how good I was unless somebody else or a group determine how good I was I just do the best I can and, and I always felt like there was only one person I could control, and that was me. You know, I never, people always said, who is your toughest competitor? I says, it's me, because I could never control anybody else. All I could do is prepare myself the best I could, and uh, all I could do is uh, try to use that to the best of my ability when I played. If I did that, there was, I never minded getting beat if I prepared properly, if I prepared did what I thought was the best, didn't do something stupid, and somebody played better, fair enough, well done. If, if somebody else is judged, judged better, then that's okay. Uh, I mean, not everybody judges me as being the best golfer that's ever played. Uh, there's other people that would say it would be Tiger, others would say it would be Hogan, uh, others would say it would be Jones. That's okay, but uh, all I know is as long as I can do everything within my ability to perform my best, and I, don't, and I don't think I probably did. I think I probably could have been better. But I also raised a family. I have five kids, 22 grandkids. I've had a business. Uh, I had a lot of friends. Uh, I enjoyed other things I'm doing. And golf was part of my life, not my whole life. And that to me was important. But even with all of that going on, you still, I'd imagine, have to have had a pretty single-minded commitment to golf 
to have the success that you had. How do you think you were able to develop that? I think you had to be. All golfers are selfish. They have to be. I think in an individual sport, you've got to be considered about what you're doing and what you're doing and being important. That's why Barbara was so important. She understood that. She understood that I couldn't, uh, I couldn't yield that situation. I had, to, I had, to, I had, to, I had, to, it had to be my dominant thing while I was, while I was trying to participate. How important was it to you to always prepare more than the competition? Well, I found what what the result was. I mean, I remember, I remember, uh, I start doing it and I start winning golf tournaments and I'm, I'm between 1960. I'm getting old. I think I think it was either 64 or 65. We play. We're playing at Bell Reeve, and I, in St. Louis. Yeah, and and I and I and Gary Player was going to go play the week before. And I said, Gary, what are you doing? I said, Why are you over here? I said, Don't you want to win the U.S. Open? I said, Come on, come with me this week. Let's go prepare yourself for a golf tournament. So we went and we we spent a whole week week before Bell Reeve playing the golf course and so forth. Gary ended up winning the golf tournament. He prepared better than I did. Which is okay. Gary's a close friend of mine and wonderful guy, and I, I wish him much success. I always have, but uh, he prepared better than I did. But I always felt like, you know, as long as I can prepare, long as I'm, uh, I get all the elements of the tournament out of the way prior to the tournament starting, then I'm then then my own focus will be on totally on playing the event, not worrying about all the outside things, how deep the rough is, how narrow the fairways are, how fast the greens, how hard the greens are, etc. All those kind of things, I get that out of the way. Then all I can do had to concentrate and worry about is how I played and how I played the course. Why do you hate losing more than you love winning? Um, well, I don't think anybody likes to lose. Uh, I haven't. I mean, I haven't found anybody who liked to lose. <laughs> if you do, you know, you, you can do that all day long. But um, what I, the, the part I don't like about losing is if I didn't prepare myself properly to win. And I said, as I said to you earlier, I said, I don't mind somebody beating me if they played better. That's fine. That's fair enough. That's, that's, that's what it's all about. But if, if, I've, if it's because of my efforts of not preparing and not performing to my ability, then I then I have a problem with it. I, that's what I hate. It's not that I hate to lose. It's that I hate that I didn't do the, didn't perform and do the job that I'm supposed to do while I'm there. I was talking to one of your friends the other day who was telling me about your Bahamas uh, fishing trips that you go on regularly, and it's I guess always a group that goes down with you. And uh, you guys went out for the day. End of the day, uh, Barbara had caught the biggest fish. And, you know, everybody's doing their own thing back at the place, wherever you guys were staying. And after a little bit of time passes, nobody knew where you were. And he said you'd gotten the guy to take you back out to go fishing again because you couldn't handle that you hadn't caught oh, the no. biggest fish then. <clears throat> well, I would, that, that would be a story. That, Come wouldn't, on. that wouldn't that wouldn't be accurate <laughs> really I, I mean okay the, the, the but that's C all right I mean but the CEO of your company John is telling me even the little um, what potato toss things you have in the office like if somebody beats you in that like it I just don't drives like to, you I don't crazy. like to get beat no matter what I do I mean but 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 if somebody beats me plays better that's fine but the uh, uh, you know Barbara Barbara does quite well she she fly fishes very well and she always has a knack about catching fish and so we always have a little bit of a competition who ends up getting the big, biggest fish at the end of the week. And uh, quite often she's got it. And, and frankly, I'm quite happy with that. You are? 
I, I'm not. I'm, I really don't. I really don't have. That's that's not where I'm. Uh, I make my living. Uh, so so if my wife catches a bigger fish than, than I do, I'm happy for her. When however, if I've got uh, if I've got a couple of guys that are that are they're competitive and with me, yeah, I want to catch more and I want to catch biggest ones. I mean, how, how into it will you get? Well, I get into it. I get into it a lot, and I want to make sure it's a bigger fish than somebody else's. <laughs> What about pressure situations made you love them so much? I don't know. I, th I think that it's like everybody says, when you come up to 18, you know, how can you handle the pressure? I said, what do you mean handle the pressure? That's the fun. The fun of being, it's no fun come up the 18th hole on Sunday at, at noon and finish 45th in the golf tournament. That's not much fun. What's fun is to come in at about 6 o'clock, coming down the stretch, with all the pressure on, 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 on who's going to win or not going to win, that's what's fun. That's what you're there for. That's what you prepare for. Um, if, if, you, if that wasn't it, I probably never would have played golf because I, I really enjoyed that. It really, it's the competition on the, and, and the pressure on me, on the field, the course, the tournament, what's going on. I love that. I just love that, that arena. It was just a, it was a fun arena to be in and try to try to. Did I always win? No, of course not. But uh, uh, I won a fair number of times. Why are you more proud of a good round you played when you were hitting the ball badly than a great round you played when you were hitting the ball well? Well, I'm not more proud of it, but I'm very proud that I've been able to do that. Uh, I probably played more good rounds of golf not having my A game than I have having my A game. Uh, you don't have your A game very often, not very many times. and. So, so when you don't have your A game, that's what Bobby Jones was talking about. Uh, you, you need to be able to figure out what I always call my, my, my swing du jour. You know, what, what, what am I going to do that day? How's, what am I gonna, how, am I gonna, how am I swinging the club? Every day is different. And I mean, I'd be maybe great one day and the next day I can't, even, I can't hit my hat. And so I got to figure out how to take, when I go to the practice tee before I play, I have where I want to be, and I have my swing de jour over here. And I want to, my objective is to bring those together before I bring get to the first tee. And so when I get to the first tee, I'm as solid as I can be. Uh, and that sometimes takes 15 shots, sometimes takes 40 or 50 shots. Um, so, uh, uh, and but sometimes I don't get there. And if I don't get there, then I say, okay, this is what I've got today. Let's see what I do. And I've shot a lot of 64s and 5s where I had that game that I wasn't sure about, and I had to, you know, sort of manage it through the day. Explain how you win six Masters and never get a green jacket until much later on. Well, that's kind of an unusual story. I, when I won the Masters in 1963, at the presentation they brought out a coat, because obviously they don't know who's going to win the tournament, but they brought out a coat that was a 46 long. Well, fit, fit me like an overcoat. I'm a 43 regular. And so uh, when I came back the next year, nobody said a word about getting fit for my coat. So, but they put a coat in my locker, which actually was Tom Dewey's coat, former governor of New York, lost to Truman for the presidency. And uh, uh, Dewey had passed. And uh, so they said, here, Tom Dewey's obviously gone, and he'd well, try his coat. I fit me perfect. And so, I suppose for the next 20 years, I wore Tom, Tom Dewey's coat. Nobody ever said a word to me. Every time I wanted, I just put back on Tom Dewey's coat. And finally, 1998, um, Jack Stevens, then chairman at, at Augusta, 
we're, we, we're having, sitting down and having a uh, little sandwich at lunch a week before the tournament. And uh, I told him the story. And he says, you what? He says, you've been here. You've won this tournament six times and nobody's ever given you a green jacket? I said, no, sir. No, they haven't. He says, so anyway, I went home, came back for the weekend, a little note in my locker. You will go to the pro shop and be fit for your green jacket. So that was 1998. And... Uh, that's when they did the, because uh, they, were, they were doing an award for me. They were giving, built, they built a water fountain between 16 and 17, which has my record on it and some things on it. And uh, uh, they dedicated it that year, so I, I got a new jacket there. Still the same jacket. I haven't had another one since. You said not winning your first U.S. Open was one of the best things to ever happen to you. Why? When I didn't win at Cherry Hills in 1960, it was my first U.S. Open. I played in, I played in 57, 58, 59, then 60. was at Cherry Hills. And I said, I played with Hogan the last round. I played the last two, last two rounds with him. And um, had I won that tournament, I was a 20-year-old amateur. I was a cocky enough kid that my head would have probably swollen out to about here and scratching my ears out here. And I don't think I would, have, I would have settled down for a long time to really do the things I needed to do to, to be better. If I had, if I know it's because I lost, lost that tournament, I learned a lot from it. I learned that other people are having the same problems I have. I learned that other people get nervous too. I'm learning that uh, you, you, you don't, you can't come down the stretch and 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 not realize that everybody else is making bogeys too. They're making they're having problems. So you know you don't learn those things if you just win. And so uh, by losing that, uh, I think so I, I look back on it. I said. You know, I have Arnold and I have a great, we kid each other a lot because Arnold won that tournament in 1960. And I told him, I said, Palmer, if, if I hadn't shot 39 the last nine holes at, at Cherry Hills, nobody ever heard of you. And he laughs at me. He says, yeah. He says, if I hadn't three-putted nine times at Oakmont, nobody ever heard of you either. <laughs> there you go. So, so, you know, we all have our things where we do things, we lose and we win. Right. We know where to go with it. But uh, um, I just felt like, uh, uh, would I have liked to have won that tournament? And one as an amateur at 20 years old, you betcha. But do I think that was probably in my best interest in the long run not to have won? I think it was. For all the tournaments you've won and mementos and mementos and mementos that you've gotten over the years, what about a money clip from a 1963 driving competition made it such a keeper? Well, I happen to have it in my pocket. I always, say, I always do. This, uh, whoops. This, this money clip was uh, a money clip that I won in 1963, Dallas Athletic Club, and it says uh, driving distance winner. They used to have a PGA driving contest. So in 1963, uh, I hit it 341 yards, 17 inches. I won the, I don't know what was second, but I won the driving contest. But anyway, the, um, the money clip was something that uh, I got a big kick out of. Everybody hit the same golf ball, I mean, they had a group of Titleist golf balls everybody hit. And so I was very proud of that. I, and and uh, it was uh, because of that little driving contest, I've kept this thing in my pocket for a long time. The uh, 1986 Masters, walking up to that 18th green, what made it so emotional for you? 1986, I mean, every time I walked up previous to that, uh, I really sort of thought I was going to win or expected to win or expected to be right there. Maybe not always winning, but being right there. In 1986, I went to the tournament with, uh, I wouldn't say high expectations. I played reasonable that spring. I hadn't won anything, but I played reasonable. Um, 
Uh, and, uh, you know, that particular year, I, we went to, went to the house we were staying. And I had a couple other couples with us, and one of them was John Montgomery, who was a longtime friend. Put a little note on the locker that you know, Nicholas has done, it was an article, Nicholas has done all washed up, so forth and so on. Clubs are rusty, so forth. Tom McAllister from Atlanta, I don't know, Constitution, I guess, probably wrote the article. And um, my mother and my sister came to the Masters for the first time since they came. The first year I played in 1959, never came again. And why they picked 1986, I have no idea, but they did. Uh, my son Jackie was on the bag for the first time. Uh, just a lot of elements that came through. My son Steve called me on Sunday morning and he said, uh, what do you think, Pops? And I said, well, I said, Steve, I, said, I think 66 will tie, 65 will win. Number I got in mind, go shoot it. So he, he threw the 65 into my head by saying that's the number he had in mind. So a lot of things happened. And then I stood on 17T and I knew that I was close, but I knew Ballesteros was still ahead of me. And then all of a sudden there was this horrible sound at 15. I knew exactly what happened. It was a sound of cheer and a sound of moan. So you knew that he hit the ball in the water. And because some people were cheering for me and some people were sad for him. And, and I, I hate that sound just because you always know what it is. But anyway, I knew that I was now right there. And I birdied, birdied uh, 17 with about a, about a 12 foot putt. And then so I was leading the tournament for the first time. And then I won, then I won the tournament, of course, with, with my son Jackie on the bag. And, and Jackie has said many times, he says, you know, here, here, I had all the things happening, yet I went to him. And he says, it made me feel like somebody important. And he was important to me. He was my son and he was on my bag. And that was, that was very important to me. And so, how, how special was well, it for you to moment. have him there Absolutely. with you there? That was fantastic. Share the moment, you know. And um, as we're sitting here in Colonial right now have, doing this interview, 1982, my son Steve came for me here when I won this tournament. The first time I ever had one of my sons on the bag when I won the tournament. Then I won, as a matter of fact, in 1984, I won at Muirfield with Jackie on the bag, and then won 86. My last tournament tour I won was with Jackie on the bag. So that was special, and it was special to have him there, special to have all those elements come together in a very special week. What do you think the interaction that you had with Jackie at, on that day was that most sticks out to you all these years later? Um, well, all day long, Jackie uh, kept saying to me, and, and he sort of got, I, I, he, he would sit there and say, okay, Dad, keep your head still, knock it in. And, and, and finally, I knocked in a couple putts, so he kept saying that every hole. Every time I had a putt, that's what he would say to me. So, and he was afraid to tell me, uh, he, he said, uh, he, he got, uh, he was afraid to tell me that I was doing well. I mean, I knew it was, because he said, every time I seem to do, tell you you're doing well, you, you make, we make a mistake. So he had his little superstitions of going along the whole round, and we were having, and, 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 I, and I, I, I can tell what he was doing. He was, he was having fun, but he was also, he was so excited about the chance of winning that golf tournament that, you know, he wasn't gonna, he wasn't gonna do anything that could jeopardize my chances of being able to win. He was gonna make sure that he stayed right where he should be. And so, and, and of course, I loved having him there too. Uh, you know, you, 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 anytime you do something with, your, with one of your, your sons or your daughter, it's, it's always very special. Arnold Palmer, how would you describe the level of competition that existed between the two of you? Well, you know, Arnold and I started back, first time I played with Arnold was 1958. We had a driving contest on the, on the, uh, 
uh, first hole, and I outdrove. I'd hit it over the hit it over the first green, and won the driving contest. But Arnold shot 60, 63 that day, or something. I shot sixty-seven or something. And Arnold was when I won the driving contest. I'm quick to point that out. He was quick to point out that he shot sixty-three and beat me. So our competition started right there. And uh, the next time the next time we played together was 1962 at Phoenix. And Arnold, we, got, we played together in the last round. Arnold was way ahead in the tournament. And we got to, after we walked off the 17th green and he walked over and put his arm around my shoulder, which he didn't have to do. It was very nice. And he said, uh, you know, you can finish second here. And he says, you know, he says, just take your time. It's a par five. Just take your time, relax. You'll make birdie here and you can do it, which was a really nice gesture. I mean, he won by 12 shots, but I made birdie at the last hole and I finished second. I mean, I, I won 2,300 bucks that week, you know, for second place. That's a big, big, big win. <laughs> and so anyway, uh, we went on and played. I didn't play with Arnold again until we played the U.S. Open at Oakmont. And we played together, I think, uh, I think we played the first two rounds together and then we played, uh, obviously, the playoff. And so um, Arnold knew and he was he was obviously a little embarrassed by his gallery a little bit because he, you know, there was he he said that many times. He said they were a little bit over the top for what went on, and uh, but I didn't hear it. I didn't. I was a 22 year old kid with blinders on, wanting to win a golf tournament, and so I never heard any of it. But he uh, he he couldn't have been nicer that way. And of course, I've always said many times. I says uh, I says I've always had to fight Arnold's gallery, his army, but I never had to fight Arnold. Arnold was always a, always a gentleman, and a friend, a competitor, but that's what, that's what made us such great friends because what we do, we could go out and try to beat each other's brains out on the golf course, shake hands at the end of the round and says, let's go to dinner. So we get the wives and we go to dinner. That's all for this week. If you enjoyed it, again, make sure to give us a five-star review. Head to my YouTube page at youtube.com slash Bensinger to check out clips of Nicholas in action on his golf course design work. Also, if you look closely at the video clips from our interview, you may be able to see my black eye that I got only days before while surfing with Kelly Slater for another taping. Thanks again for listening.